The Blaze On Demand. This is Ben Weingarten of The Blaze Books, and today I'm joined by New York Times bestselling author, journalist, and radio host, Aaron Klein, to discuss his new book, The Real Benghazi Story, What the White House and Hillary Don't Want You to Know. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So, Aaron, first question I always ask, in your view, and especially with this topic, given that there are a number of books swirling around out there, why should all Blaze readers pick up your book? Because until now, actually, I've read a lot of the other Benghazi books. They're excellent. They focus, though, on the night of the attacks, what happened that night. So what what I do in The Real Benghazi Story is take it much further, is answer a lot of the questions that people have been asking. Like, for example, what was that thing in Benghazi? I don't know what it was because the State Department, they call it a U.S. special mission. This is a new terminology. They never used it before. So what was the mission? What was really going on in that mission, first of all? Second, what really happened to Ambassador Chris Stevens? This is something that others really didn't address. Uh, why air, Why was air support not sent the night of the attacks? Why was a group called the February 17th Martyrs Brigade, which is an offshoot of Ansar al-Sharia, which is an al-Qaeda-linked terror group that took responsibility the Benghazi attacks, why were they the ones, February 17th, the militia, hired by the State Department to provide security, quote-unquote, inside the compound, armed guards they served as inside the compound? Uh, and then also, what, what is Hillary Clinton's personal role? This is something that the book lays out exclusively. Her, her, her personal role herself in the Benghazi scandal. Uh, and then actually, here's what's critical. A lot of others, uh, other books miss this. It's that Benghazi is not just about something that happened two years ago, which within itself is important and fascinating. It's also about the it's also about the here and the now. It's about primarily, I find, the arming of jihadists, of rebels, a pipeline that ran through Benghazi. Ambassador Chris Stevens himself heavily involved, uh, first in Libya, and then are shipping massive quantities, hundreds of tons of weapons. To, to Syrian rebels, and the problem is actually among the obvious problem of arming rebels that they say are moderate but probably are not, they are anti-American, problem is a lot of the Syrian rebels and the Libyan rebels from before have since, and the media has confirmed this, they've joined ISIS. They pose a national security threat to us now. They have man pads, and this goes back to Benghazi, which are shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles that can take down passenger aircraft, including American aircraft, uh, they can fire those at aircraft now. So it's not just about two years ago, and it's certainly not just about a few hours the night of the attacks. It's about national security threats that we face. It's also about how the Obama administration lied, deceived, in a scandal that I think, and I document in the real Benghazi story, the book, uh, I think is worse than Iran-Contra. It's Iran-Contra times infinity. It's the fast and furious of the Middle East. I, I would say it's an impeachable offense borderline, and I think the American public finally deserves to know what the real Benghazi story is. Sure, and there's a lot to unpack there, many elements from the fact that we had our personnel, State Department personnel, intelligence folks, over there in Benghazi, partaking in activities that 
have not been fully disclosed, and they were effectively sitting ducks based upon all the accounts we've seen as to the security at the special mission compound. First question, I guess, is can you separate facts from speculation as to what activities were actually taking place at the special mission compound and or at the CIA annex as well? Yeah, indeed, and actually in, in the real Benghazi story, in the book, I only rely on hundreds of pages of documents on hours of testimony. I would actually say thousands of pages of documents that we poured through, State Department documents, freedom of information requests, all public material. So actually, none of the book is based on opinion. Uh, every paragraph is fully footnoted and fully cited. What I find is that at the U.S. Special Mission, there are primarily two activities taking place. One is the transfer, coordination of transport of weapons and aid through Arab cutouts, like Qatar, the UAE, Turkey primarily, by the way, also, to uh, the rebels, first in Libya and then in Syria. And then we also find separately a multi-million dollar, and again, this is documented with State Department uh, information that we obtained that was publicly available. I don't know why other reporters didn't cite this. A multi-million dollar effort headquartered in Benghazi, in the Benghazi mission, to collect weapons, including thousands upon thousands of man pads, again, anti-aircraft missiles that can take down American passenger jets, that were obtained by the Libyan rebels. So, first of all, let's just stop here. If you're a jihadist and you're in Libya, and you have weapons that were given to you, or you have man pads, and you know that the Americans are coming for your weapons, and you know that it, the activities are being uh, coordinated in this U.S. special mission, well, that might actually be a good uh, motivating factor for attacking that mission. So it could actually explain why the mission was attacked. And then actually, Stevens himself was heavily involved. He wasn't just an ambassador. He was involved in activities that, Normally, ambassadors are not involved in. In fact, we find his signature, by the way, on applications by arms dealers, including some very shady arms dealers in Libya, uh, to to serve as uh, cod conduits to sell weapons to Qatar. His actual signature. He facilitated these arms uh, sales through the State Department. So that's not only not his the normal job of an ambassador. It also puts him at risk. Remember, he, he arrived originally in Libya uh, as a, a, a uh, representative to the rebels and then eventually became an ambassador. So we find he was heavily involved in these activities. And, and I want to point out that you might hear now Obama administration openly giving money and weapons to the Syrian rebels. Uh, back then, actually, uh, two years ago, the White House denied publicly that they were giving weapons to the Libyan rebels and then the Syrian rebels. So I want to know who was briefed on this in the intelligence committees and were all of these activities fully uh, legal? These are major questions that need to be asked. And, of course, one of the issues when it comes to arming any of these rebels, and it's probably one of the reasons why government officials are so careful and to some degree also vague when they talk about who they're arming is the fact that you could make an argument that this is providing material support, aiding and abetting terrorist entities. Yeah, well, back then, there were some moderates in the Free Syrian Army, unquestionably, and they, 
they were fighting the extremists. And even now, you can find elements here and there of moderate uh, members of the Free Syrian Army, even some seculars who want to fight the extremists. The problem is, uh, back now, actually, according to my information, a lot of the rebel leaders in command are no longer moderate, are actually uh, fighting alongside al-Qaeda organizations like al-Nusra. And actually, some of the very groups, their leaders that were arming, have actually signed, uh, and actually they did this last week reportedly, they signed a non-aggression pact with ISIS. So I, I, I have many doubts about the the equation of moderates versus extremists. Plus, you know, how can we really vet them? Is there, a, do you know of a blood test <laughs> that can determine whether a rebel is uh, anti-American and uh, abides by extremist Sharia Islamic law and then wants to create a caliphate and wants to and agrees with the ideology of Al Qaeda? Because I don't know of any blood tests. I don't know how to exactly vet these rebels for their true ideology. I mean, even if they are vetted, and many of them were two years ago. Problem is they can change, and as they have, actually moderate, so-called moderate rebels have joined ISIS, have joined al-Nusra, and they have weapons, and we gave them a lot of those weapons. We trained them. We armed them. So we, the United States, back in Benghazi, and it really all runs through Benghazi, I find in the real Benghazi story, that's where it originated, we pretty much put these extremist groups allied with al-Qaeda on steroids. I mean, we pretty much created an Al-Qaeda army in the Middle East. Unwittingly, it wasn't our intention, very likely, but I don't know what the intention was. Uh, but this is the result. And by this, I mean national security threats now that we face as I speak. And, of course, if you look back at history, I can't think of one example of a time where the U.S., provided weapons to groups to fight one enemy, and those weapons weren't then turned back on us. Obviously, the, the most obvious historical example being the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. But I want to get back to on the ground in Benghazi, and I grant that all of these topics that we're talking about are very live, given what we're talking about with ISIS, given even probably some of the goings-on that occurred during Operation Protective Edge with Israel where the U.S. sort of sided with Qatar and Turkey, and Israel had to fend for itself and, and find other allies. Again, it's neither here nor there. On the ground in Benghazi, basically the picture that you paint and what we've heard from 13 Hours and some of the other books is that our men and women were sitting ducks on the ground. How was the State Department directly complicit in this lack of security, and how closely does this run to Hillary Clinton? And as a follow-up to that, and you talk about him a lot in the book, him being Patrick Kennedy, was the Undersecretary Kennedy a fall guy of sorts in the State Department? Uh, the actual mission was set up in a way that it pretty much avoided the State Department standards of security. I mean, it was called this new thing, and Patrick Kennedy is the one who titled it, the U.S. Special Mission. Uh, here's the thing. We, aside from uh, not giving additional security, despite the numerous requests, including by Ambassador Stevens himself, we pulled security. Kennedy, by the way, his signature on this, they pulled something called the Special Support Team, which is a special force. It was in Tripoli that is, exists to respond to terrorist emergencies, uh, such as the one that happened in Benghazi. 
we pulled an aircraft from Tripoli that maybe could have helped with the evacuation. We denied guard towers. We, let, let's just think about the security setup here. We hired, as I said in the beginning, and this is scandalous, February 17th Martyrs Brigade militia to serve as the armed guards within the compound. And then outside of the compound, uh, the periphery was protected by unarmed local Libyans through this obscure organization called Blue Mountain that actually has a very checkered past and that was founded by an individual who was one of the central figures in Iran-Contra and was indicted for lying to Congress. So that's quite a security setup. But a lot of people have asked uh, this conspiracy that um, was this intentional to kill Stevens? Of course not. I think this was intentional, though, because this, the lack of a public security presence, by the way, lack of a flag, American flag, lack of identify, American identifiers on the cars, uh, it, it was very likely because they didn't want to draw attention to the actual facility. If you had an outside presence of, let's say, Marines or inside or a big security presence or guard towers, it would draw attention to, to this this mission that was set up. We've, uh, actually, it's in the State Department documents I put in the uh, my, the real Benghazi story. It, it was set up without even the knowledge or permission of the local Libyan government. So an outside security presence would have drawn. Now, Kennedy, I don't know that he was the full guy because actually a lot of people are focused on Kennedy, but I find many other names in the book of other State Department officials who signed waivers. But Hillary herself was, and the Senate confirmed this, there were some, some waivers that apparently only the Secretary of State could have signed, meaning Hillary herself. Some waivers were signed by Kennedy, but the Senate says, 88-page report, that, for example, one, and it's very critical here, it's called the co-location requirement, which was a waiver that allowed this facility in Benghazi to exist separate from the CIA annex, which was a mile away and was the first responders to this U.S. special mission. And actually, the new testimony in 13 hours, they say the first 30 minutes when they were held back, they, the CIA contractors, they say they were held back, first 30 minutes may have cost Stevens of his life. Well, guess what? Hillary's the one, Senate confirmed this, that signed the co-location waiver that allowed the U.S. special mission to exist separate from the CIA annex. So, again, not wittingly, but uh, she that that decision was deadly. And then I also find she may have misled lawmakers when she claimed different things in in testimony. Like she said, she didn't know about. She has to check into. She's not sure about weapons that were sent to Turkey. She was asked in Benghazi uh, hearings about this. I find in the book it was her plan. The New York Times even confirmed this later. She, her with Gen, Clinton with General Petraeus originated the plan to arm the Libyan and then Syrian rebels. So I kind of find it difficult to believe that she didn't know about these massive shipments of arms through Benghazi a week, days before the 9-11-2012 attacks. And there was also, of course, intelligence from in other countries in the region you talk about in the book in Egypt about all sorts of other threats, and we were clearly on high alert at the time and did not beef up the special mission and even the CIA annex itself. I would imagine probably the government line on that would be, well, it's an issue of wanting to maintain a low profile, like you mentioned before. What is the single most damning piece of information that you found 
in terms of Hillary's relationship to what occurred in Benghazi? I would say first, her signature on the waivers, and second, potentially lying under oath when she said she didn't know about the weapons transfers. I believe she was lying. Uh, and then it was her underlings that had, including Kennedy and others, that had these shock denials of security. Uh, but to me, you know, a lot of people have also asked, what's the most shocking thing in the book? And I, I don't know how to answer that anymore because everything's shocking. We, we as a country have just been inundated with one scandal after the other, from IRS to Fast and Furious to now Benghazi to others. And we're just not, I, I myself as a reporter investigating this, I'm just not shocked by anything anymore. But I would say every chapter of the book is shocking because uh, we cannot accept anything from the Obama administration narrative of what happened. I mean, they lied about a YouTube video. They lied about popular protests. They never were popular protests. They lied about a pause in the fighting. Uh, the contractors on the ground say there was no pause, and that was critical, by the way, in why they didn't send air support. They claim... Ambassador Stevens was saved by good Samaritans. I find that very difficult to believe that good Samaritans went into a compound in which jihadists were still present even the next day and then took out the most high-profile American, blonde hair, green eyes, clearly he's not Libyan, then somehow made it through answer al-Sharia checkpoints that were set up around the compound, and then they brought his body, we're to believe, uh, well, to the Benghazi Medical Center, which was controlled at the time by Ansar al-Sharia, which was so dangerous the Americans couldn't go in. And then we're to believe that nobody in the medical center knew who this guy was, and then they just released the body. So, so many questions, and we can't take anything for granted that the Obama administration points out as fact. And so I investigate literally every detail in the, uh, of the Benghazi story. We also don't know who was responsible for this. We have some faces on cameras. Obviously, Katala is one person who was involved with it and has been detained. You lay out a few of the different hypotheses as to who was behind this. One of the most, more popular ones discussed is that this might have been associated with Egypt and potentially Morsi himself and trying to get the blind shake released. I've also heard that there are potentially Iranian ties to this. In your view, what is the most logical, if you were applying Occam's razor, of the hypotheses about who was actually involved with this plot because it was executed well, who was behind this act? It may not have been one. It may have been a bunch of different jihadist organizations who were threatened by what was going on in the facility. Uh, or if you want to go so far, maybe some sort of state actor who didn't want arms to topple Bashar Assad in Syria. Uh, Iran, maybe, they've used cutouts before. The, the fact of the matter is we, we don't know, but we know that there is there are Egyptian connections. There is Ansar al-Sharia, which, again, is the February 17th Brigade, which was protecting the compound and that their offshoot was involved. And Ansar al-Sharia, the February 17th Brigade, inside, they left some gas canisters and the area where Ambassador Stevens was staying, and it was those gas canisters during the attack that caused the first explosion. Uh, so we have to question whether they were involved. Uh, Hillary and others actually have claimed that this whole thing started first in Cairo with a protest earlier in the day, 9-11. That was about a YouTube video, 
Well, actually, the protest in Cairo was not about a YouTube video. Uh, it was planned months in advance. CNN that day interviewed the leader of the protest, uh, who is, by the way, the son of the blind sheik, and the whole thing was about the blind sheik. You can see um, pictures all over the place, uh, postcards at the Cairo protest to free the so-called blind sheik, which was a driving force for Mohammed Marsi. In fact, he sent somebody to the White House to try to negotiate this. So it, there could be many factors and a whole concoction, a witch's brew of jihadists involved, and not just one or two groups or three groups, but several. And it seems there are, including uh, AQAP, which traces to Mali, and they were behind the Boston bombing. Um, so we don't know the answer. We do know that there are many questions about what was going on in that facility, and to focus on what was going on, the weapons collection effort, the weapons transfer effort, I think is critical in determining why that facility was attacked. You lay out in the end of your book a very useful appendix which breaks down some of the biggest lies associated with what occurred in Benghazi, as well as questions, suggested questions for Trey Gowdy's special investigative special investigative committee. What are the three questions that people are not asking that they should be asking? One, why did we hire the February 17th Brigade Militia? Uh, number two, I would say, um, and I didn't know you were asking this question, but it's very easy, it's very obvious, is, uh, is were there any weapons transfers through this facility? And did the weapons transfers uh, were they involved in any way, shape, or form in the attack in the first place? And I would say third is, why were no special forces sent? What were they really doing the night of the attacks on a quote-unquote training mission in Croatia? There's something called the C-110 I'm talking about. 40-man special force. They're supposed to be maintained to respond to diplomatic emergencies. Well, okay, if 9-11... <laughs> The anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, you would think, is the one night in the world, in the entire calendar, that everybody knows jihadists are most motivated to attack. So why would you take the main force to respond to all such emergencies in Africa and put them that very night on a so-called training mission in Croatia? And I, I ask, I, and I want to know about this, there was a weapons shipment, hundreds of tons, by the way, that was going through Croatia at that exact time. Uh, were, uh, you would think if the United States is shipping these weapons, somebody has to protect them. I mean, these are very dangerous weapons. So was that special force protecting weapons the night of the attack? I want that answered as well. And in terms of the February 17th Martyrs Brigade, do you think that the State Department has a better answer than, well, look, this was a group which was sort of loosely allied with the Libyan governmental defense force that was in power at that point, so they were the most trustworthy of a bunch of untrustworthy people? Or do you think they don't even have a, that good an answer? Well, you know, they've claimed that, but actually that's a total lie if they claim it. I'll tell you why. Go to any diplomatic mission, and you'll see, I live in Israel, and I'm not far from the U.S. Embassy there, that in many cases, yes, there are local guards that are hired but legally, the local guards, according to even the State Department, they're never allowed inside the embassy. They only are allowed to protect the outside of the embassy. The February 17th militia did not protect the outside of the embassy. That was a separate uh, local Libyan guard 
unit that was being run through Blue Mountain. February 17th militia was not protecting the outside of the periphery. They were inside. They had, they were actually the ones who were the first responders inside the enemy attack. They were protecting the diplomats. So actually, it's not even true if they claim that this was the local guards provided by the government. No such local guards are ever allowed inside uh, the actual facilities of a U.S. diplomatic compound. So why were the February 17th militia not only inside, uh, but they went with Americans? They were protecting the Americans in the convoys. Makes no sense. In your findings, did you see that there was potentially any complicity in or a bipartisan understanding of what actually happened in Benghazi and what went on. So in other words, Mike Rogers, John Banner, do they, in your view, likely have a sense as to what went on, and are they complicit as well to some degree in covering up the truth? Well, I want to know why these main questions about weapons transfers are not being asked by Republicans. So was Lindsey Graham apprised of the plan to arm the Syrian rebels, the Libyan rebels, was John McCain. Uh, were any Republicans on any House or senatorial committees involved in this? Uh, these are, I don't know the answer, but I, I, it would make sense that maybe some of them were uh, were appraised of this, and if so, uh, maybe they don't want it out that they knew about these weapons transfers illicitly and a weapons collection effort uh, that may have prompted the attacks in the first place. So, uh, you know, I don't know the answer to that. I just know they're not asking the right questions including the questions I just outlined, which are the most fundamental, obvious questions. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if some Republicans uh, in, in some committees knew to some extent what was going on. Now, I know you watched intently the first day of the hearings of the Special Investigative Committee. What were your takeaways? It seemed like via a lot of conservative media, the takeaway was that the first hearing was sort of lackluster and lacking in substantive nuggets of information. What, what was your take? Uh, I, I, largely, yeah, but there were some very interesting nuggets, I would say. For example, uh, Peter Roskam of uh, Representative Peter Roskam from, from uh, Illinois, he actually he asked, he, he pointed out, he said uh, he did a LexisNexis search and couldn't find any other examples of any U.S. Uh, special mission existing anywhere. So he said, what was that? What, it, what was, it never existed. And it turns out the witness who was an expert claimed it was made up by Patrick Kennedy. It was a term made up so that they can call this something other than a diplomatic compound and then get around the security. That's one. And then uh, two, I actually found, you know, Hillary in her book, uh, and I have a lot about this in my book about contradictions, she claimed Marines were not deployed to the facility, uh, U.S. Special Mission, because it wasn't protecting classified information. And a lot of people don't know that the reason U.S. Marines are usually deployed to such facilities is to protect not diplomats, but classified information. Uh, well, turns out, actually, in the hearings that came out yesterday, but a lot of people didn't point this out, Marines are not legally allowed, they said. They're in, in the State Department's experience, they're not deployed to temporary facilities. So actually, by classifying this, Hillary's people classifying it as a temporary facility, 
they negated the possibility of Marines protecting the compound, which raises the question, and in the book, by the way, I find in the real Benghazi story, some members, senior members of the U.S. military, they say they didn't even know about the existence. They weren't even apprised of the existence of the CIA annex near the Benghazi facility. So why was it set up this way? I'd also, I'd like to close with with quoting something from your book and then getting your take on sort of the broader significance of what Benghazi means in terms of Obama's foreign policy and where things are going to go in the last two years of his term and thereafter. You, you read in your book, I'm quoting here, the story here is the large-scale purposeful deception of the American public, the abject betrayal of public trust to the point that national security was willingly jeopardized by stirring further riots across the Islamic world when the government decided to draw more attention to the Muhammad film and even to use taxpayer dollars to apologize for that irrelevant movie, unquote. I found this really striking in light of a weekly standard piece by Stephen Hayes, I don't know if you read it, where he discussed in great detail the intelligence that the CIA collected after we stormed Osama bin Laden's compound and how the administration selectively leaked certain doc or released certain documents that they obtained to build a narrative that Al Qaeda was quote unquote on the run in spite of the bulk of evidence actually indicating that the opposite was true. So it just seems to fit the fact pattern of constantly diminishing or minimizing the level of the threat that we face, while in reality, if you look at the Middle East today versus when George W. Bush left office, you have basically Islamic supremacists overrunning almost every single country besides the couple of remaining authoritarian dictatorships there. Just wanted to hear your thoughts in general about those comments. Yeah, well, I mean, in closing, what this shows is that the Obama administration will not hesitate to put Americans' lives in jeopardy to cover for their own political crimes. I mean, in this case, think about it. A YouTube video that most of the Muslim world didn't never heard of, Obama and Hillary uh, give the YouTube video a lot of publicity uh, by blaming it on for the Benghazi mission, uh, attack on the Benghazi mission. And then they go so far as to use, as you just said, I have it in the book, $70,000 in taxpayer funds to apologize in a commercial aired on Pakistani television to apologize for the video, thereby actually drawing more attention and inciting more riots in the Muslim world to hundreds of millions of Muslims who never heard of the video until the Obama administration decided to, to um, advertise it and blame the attacks that had nothing to do with this video on said video. So what it shows is that they cannot, they, Obama, Hillary, cannot be trusted with our national security and actually will jeopardize security uh, for various things, whether to fund rebels and arm and train rebels, uh, which will blow up in our face probably in a bigger way, uh, or in this case, to incite anti-Muslim uh, riots around the world just so that they can blame the whole Benghazi uh, attack on this YouTube video when they knew it had nothing to do with such a YouTube video. The name of the book is The Real Benghazi Story, What the White House and Hillary Don't Want You to Know. And the author is Aaron Klein. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Sure, thanks for having me.
For more on this and other books, you can visit The Blaze Books at www.theblaze.com books and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash theblazebooks and Twitter at theblazebooks. You can follow me on Twitter at bhweingarten.